Father, we come to you again this morning knowing, Lord, that our need for you is so much greater than we could ever dare to imagine. We ask, Father, that you would use your word this morning to encourage us, to build us, to grow us, to challenge us, to change us, to cause us to throw our, our hearts at your feet, our lives at your throne, and depend on you in all things. We do love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So there are a couple of things that every pastor needs. And by every pastor, I mean myself. Thing one, I need my Bible. I need to have something upon which to study and stand as we engage with life. The second thing I need is a pot of coffee. So... The coffee is actually not as important as the scripture, just so we're all clear. And the only reason this is up here is I wanted to point this little guy out. So we have in the back decals to remind us of what we're studying as we go through the Summer of Psalms. Uh, this decal is very similar to that over there, obviously slightly different, but they have the same idea, and that is the silent P in Psalms, the silent God at times when we're dealing with life. Never is that more true than Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is exactly a passage where God is silent in all of what goes on in David's life in this moment. David's life is filled with trial and torment and difficulty. It goes up and down. He has incredible highs. He has incredible lows. And this is a passage where he's dealing with the pain of his life. And the question becomes, how do we deal with pain, difficulty, hardship, what do we do when life is beyond us? Many of you, potentially, some of you for sure, in this room, in this moment, are dealing with pain and difficulty and trial beyond you. Beyond not just what you could choose to get into, but beyond what you could dare choose to get out of. Pain that, that encompasses you and and. and directs, it seems like, the course of your life. So what do we do? Psalm 22 holds the answer, sort of. I mean, it does. It holds the answer for how we deal with this, but it's not a formula that says, do these three steps and boom, your pain is gone. It's a cycle of things in David's life. And that cycle, if you reach the end and you're not done, you just start over again because you'll find that this is how life goes. So we're going to look at this in three sections, cycle one, cycle two, and cycle three. Psalm 22. The cycles go like this, verses one to five, and then verses six to 11, 
And then verses 12 to 31. And to give you the answer for what the sermon or what the cycles actually are, the first half of each cycle has a particular focus. And that focus is me and my pain. The second half of each cycle shifts focus. And we can see that in verses 1 and 6 and 12. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from saving me from my words of groaning? Verse 6, I'm a worm. I'm not a man. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Uh, Conversely, when you hit the second half of each cycle, there's a particular and specific shift, and those shifts come in verses 3, 9, and 19. In verse 3, it starts out with, yet you. So, uh, focus on me, yet you. Back to focus on me, verse 9, yet you. Back to focus on me in verse 12, and you come to verse 19, and he says, yet or but you. Uh, Those are the shifts we see. Those are the cycles that we see as we go through this. And that is what David wrestled through. Focus on self and pain. And then a shift of focus onto God. Focus on self and pain. A shift of focus on God. A focus on self and pain. A shift to focus on God. Psalm chapter 22. Verses 1 to 5. To the choir master. According to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What do we do with that? We we know some of those verses, right? Particularly this first verse, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was quoted by Jesus while he was on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Matthew 27, 46, it says exactly this. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Eli, Eli, or Eli, Eli is Hebrew, and L means God, and the the I letter at the end is is a personal reference. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A big debate rages on whether God had forsaken Jesus or whether Jesus was simply quoting the first verse of a psalm to get the disciples to go read this psalm because there's a huge aspect of this song that's about him. Nevertheless, uh, there's a truth to that, a felt truth to that. We know, if we were to look at at other passages of Scripture, we know what happens when we we throw ourselves at God, when when we put ourselves before His throne. We know, as we studied last week, that He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. We know that as our focus is where it should be, we'll seek first His kingdom 
and then his righteousness, and then he gives us what we need. We know that he, in Matthew chapter 6, says that he knows what we need before we could even bring it to him. So before David could even bring to God, I feel abandoned by you. God knows that. Have you ever thought about that? Frequently when we read, God knows what you need before you ask him, we think food, clothing, money, cars, gas, electricity, things like that. But maybe what he knows we need is the emotional support that we don't even know how to ask for yet. Before we can even go to him and ask for him to support us in those ways, he's aware of it and already working to supply what we need. It's easy sometimes to dismiss the emotional felt needs of people, but we shouldn't. Neither, as we studied last week, should we focus on felt needs and emotional needs. We should focus on standing on Scripture and let Scripture guide and direct us, yet at the same hand not pretend like what we feel isn't real, isn't what we feel. It is what we feel. It is how our emotional experience is engaging with the world, yet we have something more sure, right? The Scripture, more sure than our experiences, our emotions, our feelings. And we know that when we throw ourselves before the Lord, that is what He gives us. That is what He does. But David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, God, I feel abandoned by you. So we can't say it's wrong to tell God we feel that way. Because he's not condemned for the feeling here. Neither does he stay there, I realize. So how does this cycle go? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I can't get away from it. And you seem missing. You seem gone. You seem like you've taken a trip and you've left me alone. Yet, yet you are holy. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Isaiah is before the presence of God. And, and what he gets is the angel saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Funny side note. If ever somebody says to you, we shouldn't sing songs that are repetitious, this is repeated for eternity before God. Neither should we repeat things just because we can do it and not think about it. That is not the point. But just because something repeats itself, well, so did the cherubim. So will we. They said, holy, holy, holy. For God is holy, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Then look at where he goes, right? The cycles build on themselves. This first cycle is past. It's historical. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. When did they trust in the Lord? Who are these fathers? 
The first story that comes to mind for me, there's many that come to mind, but the first one that came to mind for me was the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt crossing the Red Sea. Uh, do you know that story well? Or do you only know that story at its climax? That story is absurd. So God leads the Israelites out of Egypt, does all of the plagues on Egypt so that Pharaoh says, just leave. Take all of the riches that you want with you. Just go. It's not like his slaves are being bought from him. He's paying his slaves to leave. They leave and God leads them around the desert and then says, I'm going to paraphrase here, Moses, take a hard right. So they take a hard right and they get themselves right up next to the Red Sea, between the Red Sea and a mountain or a series of mountains so that they're stuck. And then God causes the Egyptians to come and chase them. So God led them to a place where they were trapped and had nowhere to go except dying to the Egyptians when they showed up. Exodus chapter 14 Verse 22, or verses 16 and 22. First, the Israelites come to Moses and they say, did you just bring us out here to die? And he says, God, what do we do? Your pillar led us here. Your fire led us here. And now we're stuck. And God says this, chapter 14, verse 16. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward into the sea. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And then the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. God is just like, this isn't a big deal. So it's a sea. I'll just move it. Of course, that doesn't make sense to us as people and things that we can do, but God, in providing for his people, says, I'm going to do that. And so now David, in Psalm 22, and then we see, uh, yeah, in Psalm 22, we see David engaging with this very idea, in you our fathers trusted. In you they followed, they got put in these places, they trusted you, and you did what? You let them die at the hand of the Egyptians? No, you parted the Red Sea to let them go across, but not only let them go across, then harden Pharaoh's heart so that he chases you, and then cause the sea to collapse around them, destroying the most powerful army in the world with a bunch of people with no weapons. In you they trusted in the past. And they were not put to shame. In you they trusted and you proved yourself faithful. The very first step of dealing with pain like that is to say, has God been faithful to his people in the past? Yes, he has. But, David says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver him. Let God rescue him, for he delights in the Lord. Ultimately, David's saying, but maybe I'm not good enough to be saved by you. Maybe you saved those in the past, but maybe I don't count as one of your children to be rescued. 
and he's back in the me cycle. We, we will notice that in ourselves. We'll go from a moment of, of self-focus and, and pain to a moment of recognizing God back to self-focus and pain. That's normal for what we see in the Psalms. I'm not even saying that you should do it or you have to do it, simply saying that that's normal. So you get back in this cycle. So just remembering what God has done in the past might not be enough to draw you out of it in this moment. So what then? I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm not good enough for God to love me that much to care for me. This is David. And he says, yet you, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none or no other to help. Uh, when has David, in his life, when has he seen God be faithful to him? Well, at least in one instance, 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is about a middle teenage boy who goes out to fight a giant. Literally. If you know anything about Goliath, he's the last of what are called the Nephilim, um, the giants that roamed the earth back in Genesis. And he is the last of that line, and David goes out to fight him. And David wins. Actually, David doesn't win. Well, what does he say? I mean, we have this idea, people talk about it in sports, it's a real David and Goliath story, and I just want to reach through the TV and punch someone. It's not a David and Goliath story, it's a good team versus a not as good team. These are all professionals. These are all people who have poured their life into this. David wasn't even a fighter. He watched sheep. He carried a staff and yelled at them to make them go the direction that he wanted. 1 Samuel 17, verses 45 to 47. Goliath. Well, let's read what Goliath says. The Philistine said to David, he sees David coming, and in disdain, it says, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Seriously, I've got a javelin that weighs about as much as you do, and you're who they send? Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of the armies of Israel whom you defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, which he did. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David did not beat Goliath. God beat Goliath using David. David says as much here. It's not me. This is the God of the host, the God of the armies, the God of heaven who's at war with you. Not me. God protected him. 
If we read earlier, he protected him from lions and bears as well. And now David says, God, you don't care about me. Maybe I'm not good enough for you to care about. Maybe I don't have enough worth to you that you would care about the pain that I'm in. And he says, but now I remember what you've done for me. You've been there since my earliest of days being faithful to me. You were faithful to all of our people in the past. Yes, you're faithful to me in my life. But, to paraphrase the next part, but life is really, really hard. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And that's all a picture of what's going to happen to Jesus as well, which is really interesting because he starts this whole last cycle with saying life is really hard. And then he ends up depicting Christ. And then he's going to go back to, but you're faithful in the future. And he's going to end with depicting Christ. My life is really, really, really hard, God. Yeah, with Goliath, it was hard. Yeah, with Goliath, it was, it was difficult. It was hard in those moments, but now it's really, really bad because I'm surrounded by my enemies. They're all seeking to destroy me. Everybody is out to get me. Everything out to destroy me. So what then, God? But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my, my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, for you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. For you, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he called. He's not forgotten. He will heal. He's, he's not abandoned us. He's paying attention to us. Let us go then and praise him together. Let us tell each other of what he's done. Let us work toward this end as a group. God has been faithful in the past. He's been faithful in my past, and now it says he'll be faithful in the future. How do we know he'll be faithful in the future? Because he tells us, James 1.17, that he doesn't change. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting. God doesn't change. So if he's always been faithful in the past, and then he's always been faithful in my past, we can know that he'll be faithful in the future because he doesn't change. More than that, we start to see in David's own, own agony, 
and depiction of his agony a picture of the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. Not only is the Messiah coming to relieve us in the end of, of all of the pain that we're in, but to save us from our sin, from the death that we deserve. That's Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one, everyone, turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For all the former things have passed away. And that becomes the final hope of Psalm 22, the final part of this cycle, a cycle that says, God, you, where are you? To which he says, I've always been there. God, where are you now? To which he says, I'm still with you. God, it's awful. Will you continue to be here? And he says, yes, I will. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will worship and eat. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Everyone who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve them. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And we end this psalm not only with a shift of focus to God will be faithful to me, but a shift of focus that God will be faithful to everyone in the midst of whatever pain we have now. That's why Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will never die. And if you live and believe in me and die, then I will raise you to life. There's the hope. There's the hope in the midst of the most awful experience that we have on earth, which is death. That there's hope of heaven afterwards. Because God promises that he will be faithful to us. He has been in the past with his people. He has been in the present with us. And he will be in the future for us and all people to come. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in a variety of places, in a variety of mindsets, in a variety of ways, with a variety of pains and troubles with a variety of experiences. And Lord, we pray that you would use those experiences, use our knowledge of your word, use your spirit himself to cause us to know you more and to trust you more, to know that you have been, are, and will be faithful to us. Grant us, Lord, the ability to turn our hearts to you in the midst of our greatest pains, to turn our hearts to you in the midst of our greatest joys, 
We love you. We need you. And it's in the amazing name of Christ we pray. Amen.